Monday, August 8th is it's going to be that in like two hours. It's very <laughs> we're recording this very late Sunday night. We have to move quickly. You're further. you're also editing in real time. In real time. <laughs> yes. No Alyssa this week. She'll be back next week. She's taking her paycheck, the huge paycheck that she got from hosting the show three times, and she's uh, she's she's using that to take a vacation. We have a very generous leave policy, also. Yeah, this uh, some crazy things from Actually, this week. Major developments, uh, huge a number of things that we've sort of talked about in the past. It was like bait, yeah, for us. I feel like <laughs> it's a trap, and it's also like a nice homage. The biggest story of the week. To the first thing that we talked about on our first episode. Sex scandals and the people who may or may not be embroiled in them. Yeah, but the specific person that we talked about first was Sebastian Ridley Thomas, who we thought at the time he had resigned from the state assembly. We thought maybe we would never see him again. Yep. Uh, and now he's gone and stepped in it again. Yeah, uh, and so like so just to to go back to uh, yeah, wow, what was that? Was that March? I don't even yeah, know so. how, how long we've been doing this. Feels like forever. <laughs> anyway, so earlier this year, Sebastian Ridley Thomas announced that he was stepping down from the legislature. Yeah, let's start from the beginning. Why don't you? I'll be an audience proxy. I don't know anything. You talk about who Sebastian Ridley Thomas is. Just take us through the whole thing. Okay, so Sebastian Ridley Thomas uh, was formerly formerly uh, the California State Assembly member from District Fifty Four. Crenshaw, parts of uh, Inglewood, I believe, up through Culver City to Century City. Yeah. Um, What's interesting about him? Sebastian Ridley Thomas is the son of Mark Ridley Thomas, current uh, county supervisor for the second district um, and a very powerful politician who has held a number of different uh, roles in municipal and local government throughout the the years, Uh, a a member of uh, the local civil rights movement in the uh, early 80s and in the late 70s so um but the real answer for what's interesting about sebastian really thomas is he's a millennial that's he, you can't <laughs> read an article about him without them mentioning for some reason the fact that he's a millennial is is very interesting uh to people he is a millennial uh he was a millennial lawmaker yeah. uh, and then suddenly he was no longer a very suddenly lawmaker. Yeah, uh, he came out, I think, uh, and said that he had had a number of surgeries last six. year, six surgeries, um, and that nature undisclosed, nature undisclosed. Which, hey, we said, I, I think what you said exactly was, yes. if uh, you know, he has a right to his privacy, especially if he's stepping away from the public eye forever. Uh, then, you know, more power to him. Hope yep. he gets better. But we did feel like it was somewhat um, suspicious that it was, well, for lack of a better word, it was kind of just attention grabbing that uh, this was happening in the midst of a number of actual um, disclosed sexual scandals. This that was were like the peak of the, the, the Me Too reckoning. He is. And when a politician in that moment suddenly says, bye. Right. There a lot of rumors will go around, and they did. Yes, rumors will go around, especially uh, under the circumstances with just no details being disclosed. Yeah. And he is part of, of a, for better and for worse, a very prominent political family. So cut to 
this past week, the, yeah. the Los Angeles Times uh, dropped a an enormous story. Yeah, a, a very. Sprawling... I don't think people have fully come to grips with how big it is yet, but it's this is just the beginning. I yeah, think, I, I mean, I I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I, I also think that now there's kind of a tendency that when you uh, go to the LA Times homepage or you get the paper at, at your front door. Uh, you see the letters USC and you're just kind of oh, like... <laughs> got it. They're up to their old tricks. USC. USC. Oh. We're back to USC again. OJ's curse. They can't, <laughs> they, they can't shake it. What they? This is all they have to do. They got to take that jersey. They have to take the OJ Simpson jersey down from the rafters. That is the cause of all of this. It, it is Bury haunting it them. in a they glass cannot, coffin. They cannot move on <laughs> until they take down that jersey. They took down... Reggie Bush's yeah. jersey, and they left up O.J. Simpson's. Uh, yeah. Okay. So what? Uh, uh, USC is involved. Great. Yep. So okay, we're get we are deep in some of our most favorite yes. topics by this point. L.A. Times came out with a story this past week saying uh, it was uh, Matt Hamilton and Harriet Ryan saying who are, have really been up in USC's business for they they broke the George Tyndall's. They were part of the team that broke the George Tyndall story. Uh, and also uh, Pulifito or yep okay yeah yes. so the medical school dean who stepped down yeah so so let's let's say that USC has also had a very tumultuous year that yes. has uh, seen the departure of uh, the head of their medical school uh, who has um, formal formally been stripped of his license he has to been disbarred whatever the word is for doctors <laughs> stripped, he's stripped been undoctored his, uh, ability to practice yes medicine undoctored i actually yes. like a lot um uh for basically allegations um ranging from doing drugs prior to like the same day as he was practicing medicine prescribing drugs for his girlfriend who was a sex worker and her friends and having parties where they were drug dealers yes um yes so various uh sort of impermissible behavior things that you would not want uh your dean of your medical school to be doing yes and as we've discussed george tyndall um the staff gynecologist who uh, is currently facing allegations of sexual misconduct, mistreatment of women, uh, hundreds of women, ranging up to rape and uh, sexual assault of hundreds of women. Uh, I believe hundreds of women are currently filing suit against the school. They're still right in the thick of this scandal. Hot on the heels of that, Matt Hamilton and Harriet Ryan. Harriet Ryan have come back with another story. Uh, that USC referred to actually the U.S. District uh, Attorney, the federal um, prosecutor's office. Yes. Uh, to Related to Sebastian Ridley Thomas. Right. So what happened? So Sebastian Ridley Thomas, very shortly after actually leaving the state assembly uh, for health reasons, uh, then was hired. Um, I don't believe that they have an exact date, but they sort of pinned it down to the April time frame. So this is really a few months after he yeah. left the legislature. Uh, he was hired. At, uh, but he said he would need a very long time to recuperate from his surgeries. Right. And that it would actually make it impossible for him to um, even serve out his to serve out the rest of his term, term yeah. probably make it impossible for him to ever act in any kind of capacity um, 
like a, a political um like a being a politician ever again yes um but here he is a couple months later he's on staff now he's a faculty member in the the school of social work not U- and USC. not just a faculty member he is both a faculty member and a graduate student at the same time, he that gets a, he gets a job as a faculty member, and at the same time gets a scholarship worth maybe about a hundred thousand dollars to be a graduate student at their online school. So this is like a, it feels like kind of an eighties movie or something. <laughs> like it's see, it's like a Mrs. Doubtfire kind of thing where you have to be your own teacher, right? At at, at college, it's like going back to college. Can uh, I really be my own teacher? Uh, <laughs> Um, but yes, yeah, so he doesn't actually have the um, the graduate degrees that are generally required yeah. for um, for a faculty for a full time faculty member yes. at USC. But they have workarounds for this. Whenever they want to hire like an important person as faculty, they have something called like a practicing professor, yep. which basically means you don't have a degree. You have clout. Yes, basically. Yeah. Um, and and um, this is kind of an, an area where we can sort of see. Uh, USC is is possibly getting itself into hot water with its old tricks again, trying to um, sort of hand out favors to yes. very well-connected members of the LA community. Now, you mentioned that his scholarship might be worth around $100,000. Why, yes. why is that important? Yeah, because so far, everything we've described is like, is gross, but like not out of the realm of what USC and other huge private universities do all the time. What is extra gross and makes it a federal crime potentially is at the same time that Sebastian really Thomas is getting hired as a faculty member and being admitted as a graduate student and getting a scholarship to an online school at the same time, the school of social work got a hundred thousand dollar donation from Sebastian Ridley Thomas's dad, Mark Ridley Thomas. Okay. Yes. And it went it did not go straight to the university. It went through the university to Sebastian Ridley Thomas's nonprofit, which looks a lot like money laundering. It looks a lot like money laundering. I mean, when from, you put it like that. From a a father father son money laundering. This is extremely bad. One thing that we we left out of our chain of events uh, of USC's scandal-filled yes. year is that um, they actually just forced their uh, president to resign. Yes. Um, because of the it way... It was mostly in the aftermath of the George Tyndall stuff, the gynecologist. That was the kind of the... the that was right. the final straw. So so USC's president, Nikias, uh, it's, it's kind of like... If you can imagine having the first major scandal break, the the Carmen Pulifito scandal, um, that I think at a lot of institutions would have put your your president on shaky ground. Yes. Uh, However, that did not seem to happen. He fully rolled that out. He he completely rolled that out and and was very close to writing out the Tyndall scandal, too. The board of trustees initially came out and said that they were behind Nikias. He was not involved. They had faith in his ability to lead the school. Um, And it was really an outpouring of just complete anger uh, from the students and from the faculty yeah. uh, that led to Nikias being 
actually ousted. Well, at least agreeing to step down, Agree- which he has not. He has not yet. Now technically done. That's correct. Yeah. But we, he is. He keeps saying that he is going to. So, so we now have a third potentially major scandal at yep. at USC, um, all of which happening under. Under the same administration. Under the same administration, and and they handled them all the same way, which is they they didn't come out to publicly with any of these. They all had to be reported by the L.A. Times after USC kind of took measures to cover them up. Yeah. So so transparency has really not been the name of the game, and uh, I, I mean, I I guess from a certain standpoint, it makes sense to not be transparent if you're doing a lot of really shady things, yes. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so so there, there's been, um, from USC's standpoint, a lot of opacity. This actually yeah. marks a significant break with the way that they've handled previous scandals because the LA Times just reported this this week, but we're finding out that... Um, the board of trustees, which uh, in the aftermath of the George Tyndall scandal, uh, I believe, is now chaired by Rick Caruso. Yes, Mall Mr. Magnet. Grove. Yeah, uh, Mr. Americana. Or, yeah, you know, the, yeah, the small town America uh, mall magnet um, is now the head of the USC board of trustees. He actually said that they, once they became aware of this, immediately disclosed it to uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. Yes, which. I mean, I guess there was some sort of delay there in it becoming actually public, but they said that that was for the benefit of the integrity of the investigation. Yeah. Uh, whether or not that's, that's true. That's an improvement. Yeah, that is definitely an improvement. Here's what we are still waiting to find out, and which I'm guessing we will. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is what was in this for USC? Because this $100,000 donation for Mark Ridley Thomas, they didn't get any of it. Was that was them passing it along to his son in return for the millions of dollars in contracts that the county gives to USC every year? USC is also in Mark Ridley Thomas's supervisor district, we should mention. They're the largest private employer in the city. Also... Now it really raises the question, what did Sebastian Ridley Thomas resign from the assembly for? It doesn't see if he was going to take on the the huge workload of being both a teacher and a student uh, at, 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 at USC. It doesn't seem like the, the health explanation is really holding up. Yeah. Anymore. Uh, and so I think that that more is to come on that. I just as a uh, um, to, to follow up a bit about what you were saying about Mark Ridley Thomas. He yeah. is. Uh, an alum of USC. Yes. He has a PhD from there. He has an honorary degree from there. He, uh, I believe for some period of time, possibly currently, but I, am not sure he was on the, the state board that governs, uh, the use of the, uh, Expo Park, uh, basically, oh, okay. including, uh, for a while the Coliseum and thus was therefore involved in the transfer of the Coliseum to USC. Boy. Um, yeah, so he has ex- extensive ties to that organization, um, and and we're definitely going to yeah find out yeah more about what's going on there. It definitely seems like he has uh, one would imagine the connections in place that if he did want to, for instance, get his son a prestigious uh, post at this uh, university, and that his son didn't necessarily have the credentials to do that, and he wanted to therefore. Um, get his son on the track to secure a long-term position at USC, he could 
theoretically make that happen. Yeah, and, and I think we're going to find out a lot more about what went on yes. there. And he he doesn't really have a reputation for this kind of stuff for being like a corrupt politician. I remember a few years ago there was some an issue with uh, he, he converted his garage yep. to a home office and he <laughs> billed the the county for that. Yep. But this is somewhat more significant than it's, that. Yep. Uh, and it's going to be an ongoing. This only came out thursday or friday and it's i'm even this this coming week i'll bet we'll see a lot more right stories about it there's another story in the la times this week that we wanted to talk about this is i thought the coverage of this was a little crazy it made me uh sort of enraged not the cover but just like what what happened here i think is a little nuts we've talked about this emergency shelter that Herb Wesson, the president of the city council, has wanted to build in his district, the 10th district, uh, specifically in Koreatown. Yep. This has been going on for a couple months now. He this is part of a broader push to get uh, these shelters in every single uh, city council district. As the city council president, Wesson, was saying, I'll go first. Basically. Yes, this was the first one. It was announced to great fanfare, yep. uh, and it got equal, like much greater yeah. pushback. Much greater. Uh, the neighborhood they had actual parades to stop this emergency shelter from going in. Uh, there were a huge number of people showed up to city council meetings. Lots of people showed up in support as well. Yes, but the neighborhood just made very clear that this was going to be a huge problem if they tried to put an emergency shelter near the uh, Vermont and Wilshire metro station. He has officially given up on that spot. What happened was Herb Wesson and the residents of Koreatown, specifically the Korea, the, the, the Korean population of Koreatown, uh, agreed on a new location for this shelter, which the article that covered it in the LA Times uh, on Friday uh, called On the Outskirts of Koreatown. I actually disagree with that. I think it is outside of Koreatown in Westlake. It seems like it's it's basically Westlake. I, w- I would, when you told me where it was, that was my initial thought. It's, just, it's across from Lafayette Park. Lafayette Park. It's the tennis courts at Lafayette Park, which is just south of Wilshire, um, outside of the boundaries of, of Koreatown. It's not in the Koreatown Neighborhood Council District. To me, past Hoover is, uh, yep. east, east of Hoover seems like a dead giveaway totally. to me. Yes. Uh, and there are still some Korean businesses in that area. We Spa uh, is, is, is yeah. farther um, uh, east of there. Uh, but that neighborhood is not Koreatown. And what it is, that that population, to me, is much more Latino uh, than the Wilshire-Vermont location. Um, And I went over there, I read this article and just like got my car went over there. Uh, It's uh, the emergency shelter location is right across the street from uh, Chuck E. Cheese. Um, There's Lafayette Park where there's like a soccer league. There's, There's kids all over this area. I don't think it's bad to put an emergency shelter there. I think it's actually a great location. There are tons of camps around that right. area. Yep. But the but the Korean community pushed back on the location being in their neighborhood because they were worried about the safety of their kids. And so I think that it's kind of unconscionable for the the Korean community to negotiate with the city council to put the location somewhere else entirely right where there are other people's kids all over the place so yeah. if you think it's so dangerous like how is it okay for you to say oh well it's okay if they if the shelter goes next to these people's kids mm-hmm. so i i mean we should be clear that this is not this was not the entire i think you already said at the top but just to to reiterate this was not the entire korean community that was 
completely mobilized against this effort, but it was a large, uh, it was a large and vocal segment of the population. It wasn't the entire Korean community, but it, the the mobilization was, pr- uh, as far as I saw at every city city council meeting, all the parades exclusively the Korean community that was. Yes. Uh, generating this furor, right? Uh, and so it, it, it did come out essentially as, um, and I think that we can see now, based on the fact that um, a lot of what were given as the reasons why the Vermont and Wilshire location was unacceptable—no community meetings or whatever, no, um, uh, it's not safe to have it near children, blah blah blah—have been shown to be. Uh, essentially bad faith arguments. A hundred percent. And they just didn't want it in their neighborhood. And this is what appears to just be um, what you probably might have expected all along, just literally the raw flexing of political muscle to um, basically say, we don't want this and we have enough political power to stop it. The lead of this article says, after more than a month of behind-the-scenes talks, LA Council President Herb Wesson and Korean community representatives have agreed on a site on the outskirts of Koreatown to temporarily shelter homeless residents. If the Korean community read an article that said uh, the white community residents and the council president have agreed on a location in Koreatown for an emergency homeless shelter, they would be very much within their rights to be really enraged oh, about, yeah. Yeah. about that. I think I think it's interesting. We appear to be at a um, at a moment of really distinct rising uh, political consciousness in Koreatown as a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was explicit mention during the little Bangladesh neighborhood council fight that um, we're going we being the the uh, larger korean community are going to send a message to city hall we've woken up that we're not going to be bullied around by outside interests anymore Uh, i've mentioned before that koreatown is is very um gerrymandered as a district um potentially in order to prevent such a a political awakening from taking place but it does seem like that has happened um and like to what end will that power be wielded is is an open question it sets a very very bad precedent i think if you show that the pushback works if you don't just say as the council president everyone is doing their part every community is going to have one of these shelters if you say okay fine if you fight hard enough you can push a shelter into the adjacent neighborhood Mm -hmm. uh that is occupied by people of a of a different race than you uh, I, I mean, like I, like I, I hate to, to make it racial, but it is, this yep. is, it's fundamentally, uh, a, very few things in this city are not right. racial. You, just, you can't, some, you can't ignore it. Yeah. Um, and so I can just see uh, every other neighborhood now able to say like, well, Koreatown, you try to put it there and, uh, and also like, uh, keep in mind too, that, uh, as we mentioned Council President Wesson gave a very impassioned speech about this. He, This is an issue he cares about very deeply. There are a couple more council members for whom that is the case, but I would say probably not a majority no. uh, are that invested no. in, in putting their... Uh, Herb Wesson was threatened with recall. I would say that the majority of uh, council members on the city council are not willing to do that. I think what we're seeing here is... The way that LA is in 2018 
did not happen by accident. Things are the way they are for yeah. for a reason, basically. Yeah. And everyone agrees in theory now we have to do something about this. This has reached like an like emergency yep. uh, status. But the burden of helping the most vulnerable people in the city is going to fall on the next most vulnerable people. Yep. Um, but I don't know. I don't see how you get out of it without uh, without a more equitable distribution of housing and shelters and services and all this stuff. The shelters are just the beginning yeah. of how to get out of this. There we and and so yeah yeah we are now. I think it's clear to anybody who is even a casual observer of LA politics, there is no longer a path of least resistance. Yes, I think no. that our I think that our politicians have been maybe slower to realize that than the average person who lives here. Yep. But I, I think that it is um, an impossible to ignore reality of the city now. There is no path of re- least resistance. You either have to actually fight for services and housing for the homelessness or abandon the pretense that you're going to do so. There's, yes. there's very little middle ground at this point. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about more movies. We did this with uh, with La La Land and 500 Days of Summer. Uh, just a little exercise where we watch the movie and we kind of we talk about how those movies see the city. Yep. Please name this segment if you're if you're <laughs> listening. Uh, please send me and Scott on Twitter a, a name. I it will never. Otherwise, it will never have one. And I like <laughs> it. It's a fun segment to do. It would be very sad if it never had a name. Um. We're we're doing two kind of similar movies this week about uh, people with uh, behavioral disorders driving around L.A. Yep. Uh, movie- Behaving badly. Yeah. Uh, and they came out around the same time. We want to talk about Nightcrawler and Drive. Uh, you had not seen Nightcrawler no. before. We watched it together on Thursday. Uh, I love it. It it held up so well as a rewatch for me. Yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed it. The um, I, I I remember the trailers for it making a very strong impression on me when it was coming but out. Not in the strong enough for you to see. That is a common occurrence in my. Oh, life. okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'll be like, oh, yeah. I, that is a notable one, but I you know just sort of let it ah, go by me. Ah, but notable anyway. trailer. Ah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed this movie. Stars uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, it was as, directed by Dan Gilroy. Mm-hmm. Um, Co-starring his his wife, right? Yes, Renee Russo. Renee Russo. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal plays Lou Bloom, uh, who is a kind of a drifter at the beginning of the movie. We first yeah. see him. You identified we, we the movie opens. <laughs> I was so happy to be watching this with Scott because the movie opens in a train yard. It has a great LA landmark montage, and then yeah, it it opens with. Uh, with Lou Bloom in a train yard. Yes, and I said, I bet, I bet you know exactly where that train yard is, and you did. What is the name of the train yard? It's the uh, piggyback yard. The piggyback the, yard. Uh, as somebody on my uh, one of, one of my friends has called it, the graveyard of LA political ambitions. That every politician wants to turn it into something—a giant park or the. Uh, Garcetti wanted it to be the Olympic Village oh, where really? athletes were going to stay. Oh. The problem is that Union Pacific owns it and they are not oh. interested in selling it. Do they use it for anything now? It is full of Union Pacific freight cargo all the time. It oh, is, okay. is their main unloading point. Oh. So, yeah. 
It's, so. it's, it's just on the other side of the river from Union Station? Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Right across from Metro headquarters. They get to look at it every day and just shake their fists and yeah. wonder what might be. Now, did you check... I asked you if, if Drive kind of opens right in that same area as well. It does. It yeah, does. It definitely does. Just across the river. Across the river. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is... It's like fitting for both of the movies that they both open up in this kind of industrial uh, wasteland part of L.A. And I think that kind of informs the version of L.A. you're about to see in both movies. I think they both pride themselves on being like, this is an L.A. that's a little different from what from what you're used to in the movies. Yeah. It's, not, it's not La La Land. Uh, <laughs> it's not 500 Days of Summer. Uh, dry- we have a very uh, Ryan Gosling-heavy LA Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't even make that connection because the movies are very different. Very different. Drive is hollywood adjacent because he works in the in the movie industry as a stunt driver right nightcrawler has really no connection to hollywood whatsoever none um but that it it still feels very la specific yeah and and i I think that they do a very good job of grounding it in la Uh, i think the there's a really um interesting parallel that I, I also think that nightcrawler has a stronger sense of humor it's a, it's yeah. a very dark sense of humor but yeah. it definitely has more of of a personality in that way yeah, than, than drive does mm-hmm. um but both movies open with uh heist essentially yeah. um the the heist in nightcrawler is is much sort of lower stakes he kind of just knocks out a security guard to steal takes a, like, a bolt of copper a bunch of or copper wire yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and um he takes his watch for no other reason other than that he's just kind of a scumbag yes um and then drive has a very flashy opening sequence I, I think is actually on the rewatch probably the highlight of the movie i think for so me. too um a, a very interesting well choreographed sort of um yeah just sort of caper scene yeah um but they exist within this like nocturnal la where i think um i I think plays very heavily into this notion of la as a place where like um everything happens essentially during the day so at night Uh like who knows what's happening of course he goes into uh ryan gosling's character in drive goes into staples center and there are all these people around but still it's very much um everything that happens in nocturnal la la exists in this marginal space where you can get away with anything yeah because la i think is hard to shoot at night and still have it be distinctive as la because it kind of depends on palm trees and like the the, like the background of the mountains or the beach or things like that uh but these movies really lean into that they take place pretty much totally at night yep so 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 what ends up happening in nightcrawler is lou bloom the main character gets a job as a freelance videographer uh, who goes around getting the crime scenes first and uh, getting the footage and selling it to Mm -hmm. tv networks he ends up uh in a relationship uh with a network that they call kwla6 which is clearly supposed to be ktla5 uh, they yeah. even use the the the, the, tower. the famous tower, yeah. with the, but they've changed the five to a six. <laughs> uh, but they do a lot of shooting on Sunset Boulevard, right outside of the of the old KTLA studio. Right. I don't think it's actually there anymore. But when he starts working as a videographer, he ends up all over town. But he does most of his shooting. Uh, he goes to crime scenes primarily on the west side. Uh, and they explain in the movie why that is. He says the the kinds of crimes that they're trying to get 
are about the the urban areas cre- urban crime creeping into the suburbs. suburbs yeah like that's like that's what really sells on the on the local news yeah there's a uh, a great like i said very darkly comic moment where um uh lou bloom is trying he he misses out on a um he misses out on a plane crash and he instead tries to sell the network uh, a stabbing in Corona and the uh, network executive is like, oh, what is this? I don't give a fuck about it <laughs> in Corona, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So it very much um, plays into this, um, plays into a, a kind of a vision of LA where it, things are as they are. I think I would say in real life, um, very divided along racial lines mm-hmm. and this uh the image of um actually what safety and like wholesomeness is in, in la is also reflecting those racial divisions that yes. exist so um they really want um crimes being committed either against wealthy white people or in neighborhoods that wealthy white people think are safe and therefore deserving of protection yes um, so that, that that is something interesting that I think that the the movie probes in a way that is very like immediate, but at the same time not overdone. So totally, yeah, uh, well, very well done. I well think balanced. I think their vision of LA local news is kind of exaggerated. exaggerated yeah, uh, like for example, I am I'm pretty sure they're not allowed to. Uh, show bodies on the air and stuff, which they do a lot. And the, the level of graphicness is, is yeah, is, I can't is imagine. Un- and on the morning news, especially, yeah, right? But I definitely believe that what they that they cover much more, they, like a disproportionate amount of crime on the air compared to like local politics. I almost never see local politics. Whenever I happen to be watching local news, they never cover uh, the serious stuff that we right. cover on this podcast. <laughs> um, but I but I was thinking, watching, we talked about it. The one. Uh, event that really brought me to local news and so many other people that I, I spent the entire day watching it was the Dorner manhunt. Yeah. Uh, and that was a kind of a great example of this oh, yeah. type of story right. where there was a killer on the loose who, he was a former cop, but yep. it was this black guy who was on the rampage yep. and he could kill anyone at any time. And that was exactly what was, yeah, that was what they were saying on the news. Yeah. Yes. You, who could be next yes. sort of thing. Yes. He has a list of people, you know, like nobody knows where he is, but we know he has He wrote a, a manifesto yeah. and, and that yep. that just carried the news for a week, basically, yep. and everyone watched. Right. Um it, so I, I think it's interesting since we uh since we are trying to look at the um basically like the depiction of LA. Basically to me one of the more interesting things about the movie is that uh I called Blue Bloom, a scumbag earlier. He's actually much worse than that. He's yes, a, he he's, is a terrible, uh, disgusting, horrifying person. Yeah. Um, and the movie really never makes much. Um, I, I would say that the it's at its most sophisticated in its sort of like treatment of him as, if not the protagonist, just like the person who is totally anchoring this entire story yes uh and And it never redeems him nope never even attempts to redeem him. yes and it it, it, i think the message at the end of it is that the system is built for this kind of person to succeed there was no way that he would ever fail right uh, because the society we live in and the city kind of reward this kind of behavior yeah i think i think it's interesting to look at um how does a person like this function in 
in LA specifically. Yeah. And 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 then the movie kind of really really actually says that a lot of people, a lot of the characters in this movie, a lot of the supporting cast, Renee Russo's character is sexually humiliated, blackmailed yes. by this character um off screen, um, but definitely in a way that yeah. makes you certain that it did happen. Yeah, so um, she's kind of hanging on to dear life at her job. And there's uh, the other main character in the movie is another kind of drifter, uh, played by Riz Ahmed, who he hires to be his yep. assistant, basically. Yep. And it feels like the part of the message is that in LA, it's very easy to kind of get washed away by the city. The city doesn't really care about you, and it's very easy to kind of disappear and be anonymous. But if you really force yourself on it without any like moral code or whatever if you just sort of impose your evil will on it you you will succeed yep and and it's worth noting that uh renee russo's character is um is the the producer who is also saying like i don't care about corona yeah i want to see um I want to see as much like blood as possible in yeah. these crime scenes. She doesn't really care about what's uh, what it, where the footage is coming from. Um, there are these sort of like moral tangles yeah. um, that the supporting cast of really victimized, ultimately people um, find themselves in and they are completely not equipped to no. to make even sort of our institutions cannot yeah save us yeah from yeah i feel like that is the ultimate that is yeah. the ultimate message you can't be there's no protection from jake yes. Gyllenhaal. so right now i'm reading uh the reluctant metropolis have you read that i have not i'm i can't believe i hadn't read it before it so you would love it it's great uh and it's mostly about the growth machine in LA mm-hmm. uh, for like all of the 20th century until the seven, 70s and 80s where there was the homeowners revolt right. uh, and like leading into the riots and all the fear that came from the riots uh, and all the stuff about the news wanting to showcase urban crime creeping into the suburbs. Mm-hmm. It, it connects so much to me with this book. Because it's kind of the opposite of the like L.A. boosterism yeah. of all the 20th century. Like, like please come here, buy a parcel of land. We're we're building new subdivisions for you all the time. Like, look at this ad in the newspaper. There's a whole plot of like mini mansions that you can go live in. Yep. Two, this is a horrifying place. Stay yeah. in your neighborhood. Keep out encroaching neighborhoods at yeah. all times. You are not part of the fabric of the city at all. Uh, mm-hmm. You're you're part of like if your neighborhood is safe, you have to protect it at all costs. Right, you have to fortify your neighborhood. It's a it's a cocoon. Like yeah. some at some point in the seventies, eighties, and like firmly in the nineties, uh, neighborhoods started cocooning, uh, and I think probably local news has really fed into that. Or just the this idea that parts of the city are very dangerous, yep. uh, and they're they're creeping up on you. Yeah. They're 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 coming for you, and they're trying to build an apartment building next door where those people are now going to go live. Yep. Drive, I I have much less to say about because I think it has so much less to say about LA. I think so. Uh, it, it's actually kind of interesting because this is a movie that really rode an enormous wave of just like uh 
public goodwill. I yeah, feel like when totally. it came out. Including I I, I loved it. I, I remember did too. Oh, loving yeah. it so much. I listened to the music. It has a great soundtrack, all the time actually. I, yeah. I, th- I think the soundtrack holds up better than the movie totally. itself. Absolutely. <laughs> it's for some reason I don't know if I've just grown up or if society has changed, it really did not hold up well. So you have Ryan Gosling, uh I actually could not tell you if his character is named. I don't think he is. No, his character's name is The Driver. Ah, well, clever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it actually dovetails in with the the sort of larger Clint Eastwoodness of this this movie. This totally in inscrutable stranger with no yeah. name. Yeah, he works as a getaway driver, uh, but also as a stunt driver. Uh, but he also works in an auto body shop in Reseda, even yeah. though he lives in Wesley, <laughs> which means that his that's probably why the movie is called Drive. Probably spends like three hours a day in the car. He just loves driving. He loves driving. Uh, he ends up with this new neighbor, Carrie Mulligan, and she has a son, and they become friends. They go out for... They have one day together, essentially, that makes him makes them the most important people in his life. <laughs> but her husband is coming home from jail, Oscar Isaac, and he's in trouble with some crime bosses, and so Ryan Gosling has to help him with do this heist, and he yep. ends up roped into... He ends up with some money that belongs to the crime bosses who like are who are in turn in trouble with the east coast mob like they're like old-fashioned 50s rackets yeah it does not feel current at all it it, it actually is um it's it's a very interesting hodgepodge i i I mean interesting in the sense that you kind of wonder where all these influences came came from and how how they all like came together Uh, it's a lot of ground that this movie is trying to cover i feel like thematically totally and i know they wanted to i remember in a lot of the promotional stuff they talked about they wanted it to be a love letter to the city i just it didn't really come through for me at all with the exception of one time you know what this movie is really a lot more like la la land and (laughs) 500 days of summer in a couple ways la la land because i think it is uh like you said a pastiche of film influences much more than about like actually living in LA. Yep. Nightcrawler is about people that live in the city. It feels incredibly real. Yep. Drive is a bunch of like noir movies kind of mushed together, set in the present day. And it reminded me a lot of 500 Days of Summer when he's driving Carrie Mulligan uh, home from the auto body shop and he says, do you want to see something? And he's going to oh, yeah. show her the side of the city that, that she hasn't seen, seen before. And he drives her down the LA river, which would get you arrested instantly. There would be a helicopter, <laughs> uh, like, uh, tracking you down yep. like in five seconds. You can't take a raft down. It. Um, but he drives her to this part of the LA river that does, that actually has water running through it. Yep. Uh, and there's this little kind of foresty area. I wanted to say, I should have looked this up, but it felt like it was kind of off uh, like Fletcher Drive. Oh, yeah. Like the, Frogtown area. So it's the Glendale Narrows. Yeah. Is that where it is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I absolutely agree that it's like this very strange interlude that is almost like a, a weird little elegy in the middle of this very violent movie and i think that actually fits very well with the concept of it just being uh strung together movie influences uh products of la much more so than it is a reflection of of la for anybody that actually lives here let's quickly talk about prop four Uh, let's let's 
uh, prop lock and drop it. Uh, this is another bond. I promised later in these props, they've really front-loaded the, the bonds. Front-loaded the bonds yeah. uh, but later in these props, they, they are going to start to get really exciting. What do you have to say about prop four? Prop four is the uh, Children's Hospital Bond Act of 2018. It yeah. is uh, actually... Just that is one and a half billion dollars over the course of 15 years, which if approved by voters would uh, give about 80% of that funding to, um, I think, seven children's hospitals throughout the state, including our own Children's Hospital of L.A., which is um, uh, a top tier children's hospital in the state and the country. Uh, And... Um, it would give the remaining 20% of those funds in grant money to UC Children's Hospital, um, ch- uh, UC Children's Hospitals, including the Mattel UCLA Children's uh-huh. Hospital on the west side. Mm-hmm. Um, Children's Hospital of LA, interestingly enough, is um, staffed in large part by members of the USC uh, medical school, uh-huh. uh, UCLA, obviously UCLA uh, med school faculty there. There are central in- institutions in, in LA philanthropic life. Yes. Um, and the uh, Children's Hospital LA became very famous this year because it was the hospital that treated uh, Jimmy Kimmel's son. That's correct. For his, yeah. uh, for his heart condition. Yeah. And I think that drove a lot of money. Yeah, uh, they actually just got a $20 million anonymous donation wow. uh, to help them do some expansion on their emergency room facilities and update some of the existing infrastructure there. UCLA Children's Hospital actually got a $50 million donation from Mattel last year. Uh, that's not why it's named Mattel. They've been partners for a long time, actually. Yeah. But the, an, another round of, of significant funding there. These are uh, these are institutions that are designed to help children get healthcare uh, and alleviate the cost burden of of very expensive procedures for families that can't necessarily afford them. So, in a way, it's a byproduct of a very broken American healthcare system. Um, but needless to say, it is a, definitely a public good to be allowing them to keep their infrastructure modern and uh, allow them to help the the kids that they need to. I have to say personally, I wonder whether or not Children's Hospital LA is not going to just take the money that they receive from these bonds and bulldoze what remains of my neighborhood and turn it into parking lots. They're creeping up on you. (laughs) They're very close to me at this point. (laughs) They bought the old Acapulco and turned it into a parking lot. They, They have... A ton of parking in in the neighborhood there. The, I don't the Circuit know what City is it. theirs too yep. now, right? <laughs> that is right. Wow, your two like favorite businesses. You would just yeah. kind of go from the Circuit City to the Acapulco, <laughs> yeah. uh, and now they are going to uh, raise your <laughs> raise your building. So anyway, I uh, I I am definitely a yes on this. Yeah, thing. this is a winner. Yeah, this is a small amount of money compared to even the totally. other bonds that we've talked about. Much smaller. Yeah. Um, but starting, uh, the next prop is where it gets very hot. Yeah, we've got some heat Prop coming. five is going to be a, a really fun one. Uh, thank you for listening to LA Podcast. Alyssa Walker will be back next week, I believe. Yeah, save your angry tweets, we know. And so we'll wait. Bye. <laughs>